Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Hey, Lisa, good to be with you again. This is really, really exciting because it is our very first episode of the Adoption Connection Podcast, and we've been looking forward to this for months. Yes, we have been planning for months, and I am so excited that it's actually here. Me too, me too. And you know, as we were preparing episodes for the launch, this is our big launch, we were thinking about the timing of this as we, um, you know, it's coming to the end of summer, and we're heading toward back to school time. And so we wanted to do an episode that was really useful for all of us as our kids prepared to start back to school, whether at home, in public school, private school, anything. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about sensory tips for helping kids learn. And so like you said, Lisa, these tips are good no matter how you're educating your kids, whether it's a traditional school setting or at home. We were able to bring my friend Noelle to the podcast. She is a certified occupational therapist assistant. And we met Years and years ago, when our kids were still in strollers, we taught fitness classes for moms through a program called Stroller Strides. So it was really fun for me to catch up with her a little bit. She lives in Delaware with her husband and her two daughters. She works with kids in a public school setting, mostly preschool kids, but we talked about kids of all ages. And she had some wonderful ideas just to help support our kids in um, venture to learn and be educated. I love that. And I think this interview is so helpful that I think we should just get right to it. So, Noelle, if you were talking to parents, what is the simplest way to describe sensory processing disorder to someone who might not have heard of it before? Sure. So sensory processing disorder, if we can start by saying it's how we gauge our environment around us. So um, you go outside and you feel cold, your senses feel the cold. So you may go back inside and put on a jacket or mittens or a hat, um, things like that. Um, And that's all being done or you're going to go touch a stove and it's hot, you know, not to touch it, that it's on. That may be an indication that it's on and to remove your hand away so it doesn't get burned. So that's our brain doing all of this, taking in the senses through touch, taste, smell, hearing, and then um, our brain will, you know, interpret that and then it'll send out the response that it wants you to do. Move, go get a jacket. So in sensory processing disorder, there is either a, there's a dysregulation or it's an inability to organize those kind of senses, the information that comes in, the way they're processing it in their brain, and then the way that they're, ex, you know, they're, take, they're putting it out. So they may go outside in that same cold, not feel the cold because they are under-responsive, and they would not put on a jacket, and then they would get frostbite or, you know, be really cold. Or um, same thing with that hot stove, they could go to touch it, not feel it because they're under-responsive, so your brain is just not organizing it the correct way and sending out the correct response, which would be to remove your hand from the hot stove. Yeah. So can you be under responsive or over responsive in different combinations for all the different senses? Absolutely. So you can have one, you could have a hearing over responsive or under responsive, or you could have a combination of several. You could have 
you know, over responsive to hearing and to um, touch, you know, but you could also have um, an under responsive to, you know, movement or visual or auditory kind of things. So you can have a combination or you can have a focused on just one and then you could be over responsive, under responsive. Um, and you could also sensory, you could seek it, crave it um, and want. Not that you're not responding to it, but you could crave that. What other behaviors might parents be experiencing that might look like a bad behavior, but might be a response or a reaction to to sensory disorder or to like a sensory processing error? So a lot of times it would come out as a behavior. Often sensory issues are linked to um, other disorders, autism, ADHD, several uh, fragile X, several different disorders, um, but can also be standalone and just have a sensory processing disorder. But a lot of times it comes out as a behavior. Um, They may withdraw. It's overwhelming. The sounds, the lights, the um, touch, things like that, they could withdraw, like hide in a corner by themselves, um, hand over the ears, things like that. Um, eyes shut really tight, or it could be the opposite. They could be running around the room screaming, you know, throwing things, hitting things, squeezing really tight, biting, pinching, things like that could be um, another response to um, being overstimulated or being that sensory seeking, craving behavior. So you're an um, occupational therapist who works with kids who struggle with this. And so what does treatment look like when you're trying to help kids assimilate different sensory things into their lives much struggling. I work with children in a preschool setting. Um, the majority of my caseload are students with autism and they're between the ages of three and six years old. So in the school setting, we're trying to deal with these sensory issues and be able to, um, you know, be able to continue in school, participate in class. And, um, learn and learn through their friends, play with their friends, things like that. So we will like modify the environment. So if it's a sound thing um, and they're over responsive to a certain sound, and of course in a classroom of many children, you can imagine that there's excitement. So we can situate the student in an environment either with headphones um, during maybe times that could be a little bit more exciting um, and give them some headphones as a option for them to use to kind of put them on when they feeling when they're feeling overwhelmed until they can calm their body back down take them off and then attend to the task at hand whether it be math class or reading writing or a special event like a field trip or um, something in the auditorium at school you know sit them close to the ed you know the back of the auditorium the last seat so that they need to leave that they could leave things like that so we're making some accommodations for them um sight so if they have some kind of visual overstimulation and lots of colors and things on the walls as you can imagine preschool classrooms are overloaded with uh, pictures and you know letters and colors and all that kind of stuff on the walls and we can give them a space that if they need to be doing independent work and focus on something that could be you know in a quiet corner with um, very low visual stimulation, like a blinders or something like that, a desk, you know, a little cubby where they could get their work done and not have that overstimulation with the vision coming into. And then for my sensory seeking friends, 
a lot of times I will do um, things with them to um, organize their system before they sit down and do work. So it would be, you know, if they like movement and um, we call it vestibular, which is like spinning and swinging and things like that, I'll put them on the swing and we'll get a lot of that vestibular input so that then they can sit down and do the work that I need them to do, whether it be cut, color, paste, you know, an activity sheet, and, and then maybe some breaks within the activity. If I can see them kind of ramping back up and their performance going down, we can go ahead and take a break and do the swing or some heavy work or things like that to, again, organize that system so that they're ready to then attend to the activities that they need to do. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you find with kids with especially that are seeking different senses, you know, whether it be like you said, spinning or jumping or any of those things that when you give them kind of, I guess, positive outlets for that, um, or are proactively meeting that need, then they're able to do more than they might be able to do otherwise. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, um, proactive. So you can see that maybe their performance is declining within a task and it, that might be an indication that they need a break. So you can give them, you know, an input that they like and um, whether it be swinging, jumping, um, we do a lot of heavy work so they can pick up the box and move it, you know, a heavy box and move it to their side or push it across the floor, things like that, so that they can kind of not get it out of their system, but, but get the feedback that they're seeking so that then they may sit down again. And it could be three minutes at a time today. And then with one minute breaks in between, and then a couple weeks from now, you're getting five minutes at a time and you can kind of, they're learning their sensory systems are learning as you're doing those so that you can expand that time that they're able to sit and attend to a task. Yeah. So do you find that kids are able to make progress in the way that their sensory system is processing input and doing output? Yes, absolutely. So it's a slow, you know, or it's just a, you know, giving the time, um, figuring out really what it is that, you know, bothering them and then giving them the tools and teaching them how to use those tools so that hopefully as they progress as a teenager and then an adult in the, in life, that they can use the tools when they need it and be able to filter out what they don't, you know, and be able to learn how to filter out some of the unnecessary, unwanted senses that they're getting. Yeah. So for older kids who are in an environment where there might not be a swing in third grade mm-hmm. or a trampoline in fifth grade. What are some other kind of simple or easy to implement accommodations for older kids? You know, I imagine that for older kids, things like earplugs or earphones, you know, may still be an option, but for the more movement related things, what are there good options for like elementary or even older students? Um, So if they're seeking some kind of movement, um, you know, we always say get the wiggles out kind of thing. Um, There's like those exercise discs that they can sit on so that they can constantly be kind of moving around, but maybe not so visual to those around them. I mean, they may see that they're sitting on something different or moving around a little bit, but they're not jumping out of their chair or falling off their chair. If they could get it through a fidget, something that they can keep in their lap or in their pocket 
that again might not be so obvious to those around them or distracting to those around them, um, like a squishy ball, a koosh ball thing. You really kind of had to take the time to figure out what it is, and it could change within you know a person um, time to time. But what kind of stuff they're seeking if they really like the pressure koosh ball or something squishy where they can squeeze and pinch and pull some, you know, turn things on and off like a little switch or flick things back and forth. So um, you can give them a fidget or something like that. So they can be getting some kind of movement or taking a break from the work. So they could get up and do kind of that heavy work um, that I was talking about. So another opportunity for them to get up and move around and do some heavy work um, if they need that kind of break include um you know wall push-ups you can just lean against the wall and do 10 quick wall push-ups or squats or carry a heavy ream of paper from across the room or down the hall to another teacher or the office or things like that is some of the opportunities that we give our kids um, to get a kind of movement break in our swings and our sensory room is downstairs, but yeah, sometimes the teacher just needs them to complete a 10 minute activity, but they only have five minutes in them. So we'll do five minutes of work. We'll do a heavy work and then we'll sit down and complete the last five minutes of the work. Are there any other ways teachers or parents can kind of think about the environment that their kids are in when they're trying to do something that they need to attend to? Because I imagine that, you know, if you're a sensory seeker, that that can be really distracting if your body's constantly telling you to kind of seek out, you know, it's looking for a certain amount of input. And then, you know, conversely, if you're sensitive to, you know, either lights or sounds or textures on your skin, that would be distracting too. So are there other environmental things that um, parents can, you know, create, kind of set their kids up for success at home during homework time or if they're homeschooling? Um, or things that teachers can do in a classroom that kind of minimize some of the effects of the sensory processing problems. Sure. So um, if you were thinking at home, you can make a kind of homework corner, you know, outfit it with the things. If they're sensitive to, you know, some visual stimulation, uh, you could dim lights on um, enough that they could obviously see their homework, but, um, you know, decrease this distraction. So it could be in the corner of a room with not like a heavy wallpaper or different patterns, things like that, if it could minimize that. And then some sound would, same thing with the sound. If you're thinking of like a hum of an air conditioner that to us is background noise, but to them might be the only thing they hear. And then they can't think about, you know, the the passage that they're reading or things like that. So, you know, just be mindful to kind of sit in that corner or wherever you want to put this and think about the things that you're seeing, that you're hearing, that you're feeling, and then just accommodate it to what their needs are. If they need, you know, a beanbag chair or something like that, a comfy corner and, you know, just, you know, eliminating some of those distractions. Um, another big thing at home and at school for teachers is kind of transition. So to allow the kid to let them know about the transition happening, you know, okay, you're going from playtime and it's going to be sitting down at a desk for 15 minutes. So if you're playing, I need you to, you know, those kind of warnings could, could allow the kid to get their wiggles out or um, do whatever they need to do, but to know that for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to be sitting down at my desk doing a paper that my teacher wants me to do, or even at home. 
timers work well, whether it be a sound timer or you can get the um, visual timers that can count down the time. So it's like a red dial. So a lot, I use it a lot of times with my kids. Now there's only three more minutes. And then also for the task that they're doing, you're doing a good job. You're almost there. You've got two more minutes of this task and then you can have that break. We use visual schedules a lot, which you can use at home or the teachers can use them. Um, so the kids know what to expect because they will learn to process that information and to how to best accommodate the worst um, thing would be some unexpected things, which happen in life and understandable, but to limit those unexpected things can really help those kids to organize themselves to prepare for that activity or transition or things like that. What is the best way to talk to teachers about kind of helping set our kids up for success in the classroom, especially if there's not a formal like 504 plan or IEP in place? So the thing I see a lot is that they can be very different at home than they are in school or a daycare setting or anything like that. So um, really to have a meeting with the teacher and say, these are the things that I see at home. What are you seeing at school? Are you seeing anything different? Is it better? Is it worse? And then you can also compare, hey, you know, so Johnny's acting up in school. This is what's been working at home. We give him a quiet corner to do his homework and it really seems to help him. Or we give him breaks when it seems like he's getting amped up we have him take a break um, from work and walk around the room or um, push a heavy you know, load of laundry across the floor. These are the kind of things that we do. Are there you know, suggestions that you have or maybe that you do for another student or things like that, but really kind of almost more collaborating with the teacher, I find is very helpful. As an occupational therapist, I'm constantly collaborating with the teachers to find ways that would best work in their classroom because they may have 10 kids in their classroom and they can't take out the time for just, you know, one kid, but they may be making accommodations that might work for the whole classroom. A visual schedule could work for the whole classroom. Maybe some need it more than others, but um, things like that, that you can kind of collaborate with the teacher and they may be seeing different things. They may be seeing that Johnny's doing really well. So you can say, wow, what are, what are you doing that that's helping him because when he gets home to do homework, he's a mess. And it might, you know, she may say, oh, he sits in this corner of this room and it's great. You know, he uses this little kind of quiet cubby thing and he seems to really like it. So they may have suggestions for you. You can have suggestions for them, but to really use that relationship and then check in at, you know, periodic moments and things like that. Um, but they may be seeing something more where they would want to get further evaluation from a therapist or um, a behavioral analyst or anything like that in the school. Um, so those open lines of communication are really helpful. Yeah, I love that collaboration. Just the idea of asking a lot of questions and kind of approaching this as a collaboration and, you know, kind of imagining yourself on the same side as the teacher and not, you know, on opposite sides uh, probably goes a long way in getting better cooperation and accommodations and things that will in the long run, be better for everyone. So talk to me about older, older kids, teens and preteens. I know a lot of, you know, older kids have phones now or um, what is your opinion, not to put you on the spot, but what is your feeling about, you know, older kids and listening to music or having some kind of auditory stimulation 
while studying, doing homework. I imagine that there's probably households out there where there's a point of contention. So just from a sensory standpoint, you know, why would or why might a child gravitate towards kind of constant maybe music stimulation while studying? Uh, so there could be several things. Um, one, they could be using it almost as a white noise, kind of. Um, the other, the kids talking in the background or the TV on or mom and dad cooking dinner, that can be too much for them to then also be listening and paying attention to their homework. So maybe music kind of can be used as a soft white noise in the background so that they can attend more to the task at hand um, and read. And they they can do two things at once, but if you do see the opposite happening and they are being distracted by it, it may be a conversation where it's kind of a, you get 15 minutes of work and then five minutes of just relaxing, you know, listening to some music, then give me another 15 minutes of work. Then you can do, you know, or break up whatever time frame you feel is um, going to work for your child. But if they can do both, they may be using it as an input um, for themselves. Um, so what I hear you saying is that all noise or all sound input isn't necessarily created equal. No, absolutely not. Yeah, they, yeah, they could um, hear the hum of the fluorescent lights and that could just be the only thing they hear. If you ever talk to, go to like a speaker who says like a lot and then you start focusing on like, you hear it all the time. They said like, they said like, they said like. And that's what they're doing. They hone in on this hum of the fluorescent light. And then all of a sudden, it's the only thing they hear. And it's the only thing their brain can attend to at that moment. So a lot of times playing music or a white noise machine, the ocean, things like that can help to settle that noise down. And parents cooking in the kitchen is, um, you don't know what's coming. In music, you kind of know what's coming. You know, there's a beat, there's a rhythm that they can listen to and kind of can help soothe them or just be predictable where, um, you know, little brother and sister playing in the background or parents cooking, you know, there's a bang, a slam, a, you know, sizzle that's unexpected. They don't know what's coming and it's not rhythmic. It's not um, relaxing. So that music can help to kind of drown that out and help them attend better to what they're doing. Parents are thinking, oh my gosh, you're talking about my kid. And you've mentioned a couple things just in conversation, but just, you know, for to be all in one place, where do you go? Who do you reach out to? Where can you find support in your community? Well, obviously with the internet, there's some great, you know, Facebook and Instagram. You can meet up with some other families and people dealing with similar issues. Again, talking with your students, teachers, daycare providers, things like that, that may have, you know, suggestions for you. They may have seen it with another student years before or things like that, but to get some support from them are always great avenues to work with. Um, but just that community feel really helps you to know that you're not the only one. People experience different things, have tried different things. You've tried different things and kind of sharing that knowledge is really helpful. Going out in the community, kind of preview places if you're going to um, do a new thing that you haven't done with your child to kind of maybe try a preview or call ahead and say, hey, what kind of accommodations do you have? Uh, the grocery store may be a new thing for you. And you could 
see maybe, you know, getting anxious about taking them, call them and say, Hey, what's a time of day that, or what day of the week is quieter for you and, you know, less busy, things like that. Um, so that, you know, and can prep your child activity or whatever you're doing it, you know, in advance. Um, but again, always prepping, letting them know kind of what's to come, what you're doing is really helpful for them. Um, and then having a bag of tricks of, a fidget, some headphones, um, some um, things like that. Um, a lot of them like that kind of snug thing. So like a weighted lap belt that maybe people don't look at and say that's like a weighted vest or anything like that, but something they could put across their lap to calm them. You know, a sweatshirt that maybe they can really, you know, zip up nice and tight. A lot of them like that kind of input, um, like being squeezed and things like that. So kind of get a bag of tricks and have it readily available like your diaper bag you know that you can go to in times of need yeah and, and the same trick doesn't always work twice so having a full bag is super yeah <laughs> for sure for sure it's constantly going to be changing there can be trials and tribulations and things like that but um as hard as it is some patience and calm in those type of situations they can feel it they know it it's going to be another sense. If you're stressed and frustrated doing homework with them, they can feel it. And that's another sense that now they're taking in and trying to process. Mom is freaking out and screaming <laughs> and rocking back and forth. What is she doing? What is she doing? And then now that's what they're focusing on. Hmm. So as much as possible to keep yourself calm, um, take a break yourself, you know, a deep breathing break. Um, we always tell our kids to smell the roses and blow out the candles. Just Take a minute to be present, to calm your body, and then get back into it. But you won't be any help to your child if you yourself are stressed and frustrated. So in terms of diagnosis, OTs, are those the place, is that the place to go to find an occupational therapist in your area? Are there other behavioral type therapists who can do that? Anyone in the school system? So occupational therapists actually do not diagnose. So your pediatrician or primary care would diagnose with the sensory, with any um, diagnosis that your kid may have. So writing down things like that, um, if you've talked to or collaborated with your classroom teacher or the occupational therapist, hey, this is stuff they're seeing in school, talk to your primary care physician about that, um, because they would be the ones that would diagnose um, an occupational therapist. However, or a school psychologist um, could get them tested in terms of how it's impacting them in the school environment. Where we wouldn't say your kid has a sensory processing disorder, we would say we've done these few tests and we see that there is, you know, he's a little sense, he's oversensitive to um, touch and to sound. And these are some accommodations we're gonna make in the school setting. So we can do that, but we would never diagnose them with a sensory processing disorder. And vice versa, if your doctor has um, diagnosed your child with a sensory processing disorder, I, I would highly recommend you know, letting the school know, the school nurse, um, the school psychologist, the teacher, and the therapist know um, so that they can do the testing. And they may be accommodating very well, but to know and just have in the back of the mind, we've tested the student. They have a slight sensitivity, but they're dealing with it really well. But in case something new were to come up, they would be prepared, know that they've had the diagnosis, 
um, that they've done some testing and how to best deal with it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Noelle, for all of your wisdom. Everything you said, I think, is super practical. And I know that all the parents listening will find it super helpful. Absolutely. That was such a great interview, Melissa. I really appreciate Noelle coming on and talking to us because, you know, I have a son who's been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. So we've been in this world for a long time, but I can still learn so many new things. And even as he grows older, some of the things that worked when he was little don't, you know, they're different now. And so I was just really thankful for her wisdom and her knowledge. Yeah. And I love the last part where she talks about what we call co-regulating. So just the idea of a mom or a parent caregiver staying calm in the midst of whatever behavior is going on. I mean, that's true, not just with behaviors that stem from sensory processing disorder, but so many things. And so it just fits so well with, you know, just the different parenting tools that we are already are talking about here at the Adoption Connection. So yeah, it was a great fit. I'm so glad you interviewed her. Okay, so if your child is struggling with sensory processing disorder, head to our website, theadoptionconnection.com slash one, just the number. There you can download a free cheat sheet of accommodations and resources. Again, that's theadoptionconnection.com slash one. And then stick around. The next part is my favorite thing we do here at the podcast, and it's where we answer a listener question. We've come to the part in the podcast where we like to answer a listener's question. So the question today from a mom is, I want to know how to help my daughter regulate when she is ramping up to be aggressive and disrespectful. Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's actually one that we get often. This is a good one for me because I'm a reactor. I'm a fighter in fight, flight, and freeze. And so this is something I've been working on a lot. Something that's been really helpful for me is kind of doing a regular practice of mindfulness. Research shows that even if you just do like 10 minutes of mindfulness a day, you actually give yourself an entire full second extra before you react. So it kind of gives you that split second to think before your, what we call your lid flips, before you get just as dysregulated as your child. And so the reason why that's important is because I think the most important thing we can do to help our kids regulate is to stay regulated ourselves because they feed off of our kind of emotional energy. I like to think of it as like a lighthouse. They kind of need like in their storm of emotions, this one solid safe place that they know they can keep fighting to head towards. They can't head for that and find safety in that lighthouse if the lighthouse is either out or floating around on the open seas as well. So kind of what I endeavor to do in helping my kids regulate. That's great. There are, you know, we can't completely control our children's behavior. We can control ourselves and we can hope that using the skills and things we know will change our child's behavior but that doesn't always happen. So we have to control ourselves. The one other little tip I was, I mean, we could talk about this for probably four hours, but the one other little tip I wanted to add is that when my child is ramping up, sometimes the simplest thing I can do is say, Hey, I see that you're getting a little upset or Hey, I see that you're getting a little frustrated. And then 
see if our child can answer back, yeah, I'm really frustrated because of, and then we can begin to address whatever the problem is. And I think having a toolkit of basic calming techniques for your child is always a good idea. And if, you know, in the beginning, you might even need to write them down to remind yourself, does my child need to eat something? Does my child need to drink something? Do I, you know, is there, can I invite her to sit in the rocking chair with me? Have some basics that you go to when you see your child beginning to ramp up and see if if you can catch it early. I think if we run ahead of the problem to prevent problems, but then also try to catch them early before they get too big, that makes a big difference. Yeah. And also remember, you know, the state of dysregulation is actually a physical brain state. It's, you know, when the reaction part of our brain is working um, or in control rather than our logic brain. Sometimes we call this like the lizard and logic brain. And if we can, again, stay calm, but also maybe redirect our child either with something funny or with something that kind of forces them to engage their logic brain. It's it's really hard for emotions to run away with us when we're engaging the part of our brain that is logical and a little bit more stable and does all of the thinking for us. So, you know, you have to kind of be creative and know your kid. And unfortunately, the same tool probably, or the same trick probably won't work twice or at least two, for too long. But we used to, you know, dare our kids that they couldn't do a handstand or that they couldn't count to a certain number or do something and, and just kind of getting their brain to focus on something different um, often gave us just enough space to kind of get in and, and maybe offer a snack or do something that would continue to help them de-escalate. Right. And I think that's also the point of that question is to try to help our child, you know, try to pull them up out of that sort of, you know, instinctive reptilian kind of brain, we call it sometimes too, and get them back into the thinking part of their brain. So from the downstairs brain, back into the upstairs brain, if we can get them verbally processing and catch it there, it might help. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or leave a voice message at 208 741 3880. And if you do that, you may even hear yourself ask your own question on air. That would be so great. We'd love to hear from you. And if you need more personal help, both Melissa and I offer private coaching through our website. You can find more information there if you head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Yes, coaching is such a great fit for busy moms because you get just the advice that you need for your family. And there's still time to take advantage of our summer coaching rates. So definitely go check that out. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.